0: Hello, I'm Stuart Preston, and this is the Stone Day Reports, where I have conversations with those who have changed their lives with the power of psychedelics. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Guy Murray. Guy suffered from CPTSD, or Complex PTSD, from trauma experienced in childhood and in war in Afghanistan. That led him to psilocybin and LSD for help. His story is an important one, and is being told in the documentary film Breaking Through PTSD with Psychedelics. So let's hear from Guy. All right, Guy. Well, thank you, first of all, for coming here on the Stone Day Reports. Um, I really appreciate it. You, you've got a pretty powerful story here. And so I'm grateful to you to come on here and, and share that with everybody out there. So first of all, thank you.
1: Ah, thank you, Stuart. It's really nice to hear. Um, yeah, no, it's nice to be here. Hello to all your listeners. Um, I am now one of them. I've been going through your podcast. nice. It's nice. very nice. It's very nourishing.
0: Good, good. Excellent. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So I saw your story. Uh, you know, you you are the subject of a documentary called Breaking Through PTSD with Psychedelics, which obviously caught my eye. And you described, um, I think, almost a little more in depth than most people do, that how how trauma started in childhood. And, and then you ended up having a, you know, unfortunate, you know, heroic experience afghanistan and, and coming back with some ptsd and actually see ptsd which i guess is complex so maybe you can tell us the difference at some point here but kind of tell us your story like what what how did the trauma get built up what were you dealing with what was life like how did you end up coming then to to psychedelics and then we'll after that we'll kind of dive into your experiences and how things have changed but give us a little bit of background on on what was going on with you
1: All right. But you have to pull me out of any rabbit holes. I've got ADD, so my my mind jumps around. Um, I'll try and keep it in a nice, constant flow. But, yeah.
0: Perfect.
1: Um, Okay. So I joined the Army in 2008. I thought I was just, you know, going to sign up, serve my country. And it was a very sort of obvious route for me because I always had a sense of adventure. Hmm. And uh, I believed that you know it was completely my own, des- my decision, my choice, my free will. And I and I went off to training. I found training quite difficult initially, just because I was I was around some rowdy blokes. You know, I was yeah. I'd always been a sensitive kid, um, mm. and it was a bit of a shock to the system. Like a lot of my friends that I made there and still in contact with today, they you know came from some some pretty testy backgrounds, to say the least, mm. and. I was kind of like this in-between person the whole time, um, like you know, not quite an officer. So I joined as a non-commissioned officer, so just you know, the lowest rank. I wanted to mm-hmm. work my way up, you know. I was like, quite. Yeah. I always thought that thought like that, like you should get to know the bottom and then get promoted upwards. Um, Good. Yeah, and I had amazing time. By the end of training, I loved it. I loved the the power that came to me from getting physically fit from. Mm-hmm you know the weapons that get put into your hand but it was always a sense of like a game to me like it never truly sort of sunk in that you know I was closing killing a real enemy and uh, it was a, a year after I joined up at the age of 18 just turned 19 at the start of training so I went out to Afghanistan just around my 20th birthday in October and yeah, when I got out to Afghanistan, um, my name got put forward as being someone who was quite good with the old metal detector. Um, wow. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of sounds like a nice compliment until you realize
0: you're going yeah.
1: to yeah, be one of the boys walking five to 10 meters out in front. Actually, I say that our number twos are people like protecting our backs. They didn't really care about the, the rules. They would be right up on my back with me going mm-hmm. to search for these devices yeah um they were just as willing to put themselves in harm's way as us boys with the metal detector so but yeah is, we were literally
0: stressful i i know when i was in the army i trained on those mm-hmm. and removing mines it had nothing to do with my job but i thought to myself i hope i never have to do this
1: it's a lot of pressure it's pressure it's a lot of, of pressure it. yeah the people who are behind you you know like yeah. they're, your, they're your brothers and if you miss a device if you you know if you don't step on it which is scary enough like someone else is going to step on it right unfortunately you know that happened and people have taken their lives in the guilt and the shame afterwards so oh, I bet. Oh. yeah survivor's guilt man
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you imagine um so yeah i was that was kind of put in my hands and then you know i was out on daily patrols um we're in helmand uh sang valley so it was, it's a pretty leery place. Um, we got told it was going to be very calm, but actually statistically it was dubbed the bloodiest tour of Afghanistan. Um, uh. One in four people in my job role handling the metal detector on that tour were killed. Um, so obviously I feel very lucky to have made it back. Um, and again, there used to be a little bit of guilt that came with coming back, I guess. Um So yeah, so I had that experience six months, halfway through the tour, February 25th is coming up. Um, I was watching this fierce battle from a sentry position, so I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything about this battle that was going on. And I was watching down the road. These lads were getting ambushed, and one of them was my friend Martin. And I was just watching him through these binoculars um, Ah. there with him in the battle, and I just saw a round hit the sand in front of him then hit his weapon and then the final one just straight through his face and then
0: oh my god
1: yeah and you know like if i close my eyes now i can go to that memory like quite easily it's vivid it's vivid you know it's 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 in my brain but as we'll get into get into it in a bit there's i now don't have the emotions attached to that memory um which is nice so it's like it's just a, a distant dream but i still obviously very much respect his memory and what yeah. he did that day and it was all saving a friend who had just been shot through the back actually um poor old Andy um but he survived and then Good. yeah and then I guess the hardest bit was after that I was in a it was in Peter Levine's book um I can't remember the title now something the tiger oh, I can't remember it's about somatic injury holding mm-hmm. trauma in your body and he talks about it's like when a bird flies into the window and it's you can tell it's not dead, it's there like breathing heavily in your hand. Um, and then just out of nowhere, they suddenly just switch back on and fly away. But it was like for about two, three hours, I was stuck in this stunned state of just. I just yeah. yeah. I just I couldn't do anything. I was in shock. I just remember just being like it was like there was a ringing through my head like. Zing. Yeah. And I was I was just like. Um, and yeah, and the first time that my body loosened up is when I went to the toilet and I forced myself to like to take a piss. Right. And then mm-hmm. I suddenly realized I had control over my body and then that's oh. when the, the tears came and like the, oh my God, his girlfriend, like I've met his mom, like I've, I've met this, like he's met my mum, Like, what's my mum going to think when she sees this on the news? Because I won't be able to tell her before that I'm okay. I'm just all the, like swirling and just like, I just wanted to be sick and
0: yeah,
1: at that point a corporal came up and he, he saw me like balling my eyes like, and grabbed me and like pretty much put me up against the wall. And he was like, you can't break down now. If you break down now, that's the end of you, that like, you can't, you won't be able to finish this tour and we we need you here. And I just remember being like, this is unfair. And so that's, <laughs> that's my best mate. <laughs> just watch him get yeah. shot through the face. You need no time for mourning. And I, I stomped up to my, um, Mr. Fultz or one of the bosses. I was there like, I want to be on the plane. I want to repatriate him. And I want to do this. I want to do that. And he was like, well, guy, he was a valid man. He was a man, you know, like he was, we've, we've got fewer and fewer of you on the ground. Like you've got to stay out here. Yeah. <laughs> and it just all sunk in. And I just had to bottle it up. I became very dissociative when I spoke to my mum on the sat phone, which was rare. She was, she could just hear my, you know, the my voice like disappearing. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that was very, very hard for her and very hard for the rest of the family. Yeah. But you know, um,
0: can only imagine.
1: Yeah. But I made it back, which is nice. Yes. Um, yeah. And like, what was it
0: like when you came back? I mean, that's uh you 'cause you alluded to the fact that now you've kind of separated the emotions from the the um visual memories that you still have.
1: Yeah, that took. When that's
0: you came it. back, that wasn't the case, right? When you came back, all this was still very much alive inside of you.
1: Nine years, I think, I sat with that feeling.
0: Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah,
1: like genuinely, like nine years, like of not being able to move on, um, of ruminating and um, feeling like those memories had defined me and made me the person who I was. Like that's what I thought. Like I could only see the world through this yeah Distorted, damaged lens, um but when I first came back, you know, like you're welcome back with flags, you get the heroes welcome, you're marching through the streets, everything's
0: yeah it like, real
1: yeah it it felt like watching an old wartime movie when they're marching through the streets after they've just saved Europe, mm-hmm. apart from i just well, when everything starts to unravel, it's like, what did we save like, who, right. we, we we didn't save our friends like. What's happening in Afghanistan? And then, yeah, like oh, that's another sort of rabbit hole to go in. But for for a while, the army keeps you moving. Like I jumped out of an aeroplane, however many times I um, did, loads more adventure training, like all these things to try and bring you back down. But in between those moments, we we're excessively binge drinking and being, you know, idiots, and sometimes even violent and getting arrested. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was sort of built to a point where, um, we actually some of us started taking MDMA in our rooms.
0: Just, just uh, on your own. Just a a thought occurred to you to take it. To just kind of was it kind of like an escape?
1: I think a lot of people have taken drugs before they've joined the military. In fact, yeah, yeah. Research shows that that's most likely to be true because a lot of people come from broken. Sort of family mm-hmm. systems where substance abuse is rife, so a lot yeah. of people join the military to escape that. And obviously, some people like if these feelings get too much and get too overwhelming, of course, they're going to revert back to this thing which has managed their symptoms in the past. Um, so yeah, so it, like it wasn't all the time, and it was a few of us, and I'd never name names because it's such esteemed such a dishonorable thing in the army, yeah. Like, you there's no warning, there might be a warning now but there's no warning warning you'd just be chucked out on your ass dishonorably discharged like the day after you came back from afghan like scary
0: yeah that that is
1: that's that's just wrong yeah it's nasty nasty yeah <laughs> yeah um but yeah even so so i i came back i did a promotional carder like got up a couple of ranks one rank telling a lie there don't know why i had to lie um <laughs> and I, uh, I it was always my intention to transfer and become an officer and um i I went through the process and I just one day I got put in front of the commanding officer, the big cheese the you know the guys in charge of the regiment and he's is that like, right you've passed you know this interview you're probably ready to go off blah 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 and is that it just you know it's so important to to know what you're doing these things for yeah,
0: and, yeah.
1: I, and what happened next was I doubt he even knew it but he Collapse my house of cards. He like to flick the top couple of cards by role playing with me. He goes, Okay, so you come back off this coach from Afghanistan, you get off, you're faced by the media, and some little media or oh, asshole asks you this really obscure question Who were the people? What were the nationalities? And who were the people that flew the planes into the Twin Towers? Huh. And I was just there, like, Huh. I was like, Um, and he was like, "So you've been to Afghanistan, and now you've come back, and you you haven't got an answer." And I was just yeah. like, I was like, "Fuck!" <laughs> I was like, I was just, I was just like, "Oh no!" Like, why did you go? And yeah. then. I got out of that office and as you can like because my, my you know this little ADD brain which I didn't even know was unique in a different way just started ruminating and digging deeper and wanting to find the answers to these questions yeah and it was like it was like it was like each segment of that house of card was falling down and knocking the other segment over and it was just collapsing from level to level to level until I was like left with nothing and I was like Oh shit. <laughs> you you gotta get out of this. Like, you don't want to become an officer. You don't wanna put Martin in that same position like a young boy, 19. Like, that's not what you want. Like, it's the opposite. I was like, yeah, time to bug out. And um, because my mental health had deteriorated so much, I'd gone to the medical officer and oh man, this is you know, a lot of therapists out there, if you're listening, this was some of the worst advice. She uh, I told her I was close to tears. I was thinking about my friend Martin a lot she goes she goes you've just been promoted now corporal murray you know it's just de- demotivation in the work role you need to keep on going and like i got up and she's like you're an lance corporal now you'll figure it out
0: oh my gosh
1: <laughs> and yeah and that's um i went and took my first well probably my only ever sort of like overdose but i, I say that very you know people listening i said it kind of lightly it was just because it was tramadol so it was an opioid and it mm-hmm. was it, it was just like i was a like a smudge on a work surface and i was just trying to rub myself out of existence like i had a great quote the other day that it's a moving away of life rather than a move towards death like i was yeah. scared of death i was you know like every time i saw death martin's death like i was paralyzed by it so and i, and I didn't want to like it scared me i couldn't take my knife because it scared me so much so it was, it was like i was trapped in yeah. like this weird existence like in limbo um and yeah i had to get out and I, I left the country and i just luckily the army took us on some amazing ski trips where i was dancing mm. on tables downing rosé and snogging beautiful girls right <laughs> was right like, and um, I just met a girl out there and she was like, yeah, you can come live here. You can do, you know, you can work a winter season out here in Val And And um, luckily I just, I had some nice people around me, a friend. And she was like, just come out, like, just leave that behind you. And, and I did. I left still under my military contract. I left three months, like before I was meant to leave. No one battered an eyelid, had a clue of where I was. I played the system, told one person where I was and another person a different story. No duty of care. <laughs> but I wow. done it. You know, I created that situation. I played the game. Like I knew I could see how to do it. Like it's it's no one's fault. It's just like playing mum against dad.
0: Yeah. And, yeah.
1: Um, and yeah, and then four years it took me before I came back home. I was drinking, partying, using recreational drugs. I was addicted to socializing, like being around people, always having to be happy. But unfortunately, it kept me in massive extremes of euphoria and massive highs like snowboarding and drugs and drinking and the moment i left that feeling that situation i would plummet Mm. self-esteem was so low um and it was just turbulent i was probably just this little ball of chaos for anyone to have to endure just yeah you know people call it bipolar or whatever they you know um whatever they whatever you want to call it um that's what they call it now but it's just my inability to calm myself down to sit with the pain to sit with my emotions hmm. and bring myself back to like emotional equilibrium i just couldn't do it it was it seemed boring to me
0: yeah you had to get back to that up that yeah manic, that manic phase.
1: manic yeah i had to stay there because yeah anything lower than that was too painful and scary
0: yeah jesus
1: yeah and then it took a beautiful exciting dancer girlfriend to uh we ended up moving to Dubai together and she just saw us like this shell just following her around living off the excitement that her life brought to me and yeah she uh she said you had no driver ambition and broke it off and I went back home with my tail between my legs and huh you know and then that's when i i started watching ted talks on how to unlearn this sort of way of thinking this depression and saw ros watts deliver a wonderful thing on psilocybin and uh, ted talk on psilocybin and depression and i was like hey like drugs have really worked for me to be expressive like i don't feel like i'm consumed by drugs i just feel like i use them to communicate and get close to people and all those things that I can't usually do when I'm sober. It's very much an attachment thing to me. And it was a way of like other people could help me regulate my emotions. It's why I had a mild sort of addiction to sex because women are just such amazing caregivers and you go and lay with them in bed and they bring you, I mean, they bring a lot to you, not just this, but they were bringing me back down to a nice, calm, transcendent, comforting experience. Um, Yeah, just... So I started university, and at the same time, was doing all this re- reading and research and into the literature, and um, yeah, and I went and had my f- I went foraging for mushrooms in Scotland in the Highlands. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, I did all the. I was looking through all the guides, and um, you know, like reading stuff that Paul Stamets and people have put out there, and um, I, was, I was searching for so long in the in like the thick of the woods in the forest um but in the daytime i was actually working at a coffee stall uh with my friend ash and uh so all all during the day or in the evening sorry i'd go into the woods to try and find these mushrooms and i couldn't find them one day i was working in the coffee stall which was based in this big open field outside of a whiskey distillery for people Uh to to get their coffee off the coach and i've just got my head in my hand just you know dreaming of mushrooms and uh, (laughs) the Yeah, the skies literally opened up, man, like, which is rare in Scotland. Um, And and the sun came out for a good couple of hours. And within that couple of hours, it dried the top of these mushrooms that were in this field that I was working in. And the field that I'd been working in for two, three weeks without finding any mushrooms was littered with psilocybin mushrooms. Wow. Liberty liberty caps. Yeah. Like you couldn't write it. You literally couldn't write it. Um, Wow. And then for like the next two months, I was just walking in nature, either with a friend or by myself or in my tent with like a little lamp and a notepad, and just really trying to get to the crux of like my issues and like how I didn't like myself or love myself. And I began to see that my thoughts were fueling the emotional turmoil that was like inside me. So I I connected with it and I made myself a promise in Scotland that I would just start to engage with that side of myself and be more expressive and open. Um, and yeah, I went back to university and kind of told everyone what had happened up in Scotland. And I thought everything was okay, um, but it wasn't enough. I kind of went back to the same environment that I'd kind mm. of, and it wasn't a bad environment. It's just, I don't know. I just remember I had an argument with my mom and then my sister and um, the same sort of narrative, like, if you've got ADD or anyone's got ADD, you've probably been called lazy, selfish, arrogant. It's just because it's very hard to think outwardly when you're constantly thinking about your internal state. So you do things to kind of protect yourself. And I just had these sort of same arguments and I sort of realised that I was kind of like invalidating my sort of existence in a way. And and my dad rang me, who I don't speak to all that much. We do now, which is really nice. Um and he told me he had pulmonary fibrosis, which is a degenerative disease of the lungs. And just, just you know, coming back from Scotland, just these things just kept layering up and building up again. And I was like, no, I was like, I thought i got it. I thought I went yeah. deep enough. And and I was kind of at this crossroads again. And I was like, I can't go to my family. This isn't about my girlfriend. Like I just, I just met a lovely partner of mine um it's not about her she can't bring you anything like this has got to be more work by yourself and luckily a uh, a friend had reached out on Facebook a few months ago and is like come out man I've got a pretty good method with some LSD and I'll I'll guide you through some things and see if see if it helps me and my partner are out here and we'll look after you for for three or four days
0: nice
1: yeah so I jumped on a plane and went over to Barcelona the trip in was some of the strongest winds rains and storm that I've ever oh. had on a plane <laughs> oh my it was, god it's so typical like even like the air stewardess um they were they were sat down like looking at each other smiling um oh. and, you know you know it means it's a bit hairy but you've got to go through the storm right we know this <laughs>
0: yeah yeah you had to pass through that
1: <laughs> yeah um so yeah i had my biggest breakthrough out there in in barcelona and um man it took 10 hours like to get to the breakthrough and my guy had almost almost given up i had some pretty strong defenses around me i'd build up my iron fortress with all these stories all these victim stories yeah all this, all this suffering and he was just he was just sitting there nodding and smiling along as i had my head in his partner's lap like yes guy yep you know this story yeah okay and i was there like fuck it seems like he's waiting for something <laughs> like, like, like like what is he waiting for and it was like it was like he was the the voice on on the devil's shoulder and i was trying to climb out of this this room constantly by telling these stories and then it, like eventually i just came to like be like okay like what is it like what are you trying to tell me and he took me for this walk and him and his partner and he, he took me to outside this chapel um it's really weird it's like they they're, it's, they're not weird the the setting was they were looking after this big chateau in barcelona and there was a chapel on the grounds and they had the key to it so we're sitting outside this chapel and he's like guy like you know there's a very holy place in here do you do you want to go inside and i was like you know i'm on lsd at the time a triple dose by the way like
0: oh big dose
1: 400 mix <laughs> um yeah or almost 400 mix um and I'm like, yeah, I want to go in this chapel. Yeah, like I, I want to find this holiness or whatever it is. And he was like, you're gonna have to, you know, like, like, be true to yourself. And I was like, I am true to myself, man. Like, I've I've told you everything I know. And he's hmm. like you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not going there? Like, where do you like, where is it that you need to go? Like, what is it you've come here to tell me? And I was like, I don't know. And uh, have you ever seen Goodwill Hunting? Yes. You know the scene where Robin, where Robin stands up and faces Will and he just looks at him and he goes like, it's not your fault. Yeah. And then Will's like, man, yeah, I know, I know it's not my fault. The guide looked at me and is like, you know, your love. Like me, me and my partner, we love you. And I was like, yeah, I know. Like, yeah, you, you love people. Cool, I get it. And then he said, no, guy, I, like I, I love you. And I was there like, oh man, this man's attacking me. like he's 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 attacking me and i was like like yeah cool i was like yeah okay and then like he came closer to me is that like like i love you and i was like man i'm not gay i'm not gay Mm. and and he was like guy this isn't about being gay i was (laughs) like i was like i don't i don't get it i don't get it and like and like he hugged me and he's like it's okay and i was like i know and then he was like okay Right, this it's, it's not going anywhere. I'll show you the inside of the chapel. And I, he showed me the inside of the chapel. And it was completely bare. But what he didn't know inside my head, I was that like, huh? Like he like he can just love me unconditionally. Like he barely knows me, but he he's given me this love. Like him and his partner are. And I was yeah. like, and I, and I can't even accept it because I think that to accept it that I'm gay, huh? Like, and I was there like that is fundamentally wrong i was like i was like that's the same hate that causes discrimination and yeah and like that's the hate which fuels like you know like in like inter-societal like conflict and just because my defenses were so down i was there like wow you can't be loved by men like like that's big and uh, and I was like, mm. it means that all these people that you grew close to in Afghanistan and they grew close to you, like you grew over this bond and then you come back, yet you can't be close to one another enough for, like, to put your arms around each other and heal, but you could with the MDMA and you could with this. And yeah, we went back into the room that he was doing. Like we, would, like, we took the LSD in, which was nice and incense on and by a fire. And him and his partner sat up on like the sofa, and I was on this like mattress on the floor, and it just broke inside me. Oh. I, I just felt unconditional love for myself because of this realization, and it was like it was basically like he had whispered like a secret in my ear, and I was like, I get it now. Like I get it. I've never loved myself. Because I've been, I like, intergenerational trauma. Like, my uncle was killed when I was a kid. I came out and I was a security blanket for everyone. Like, I, yeah. I was loved conditionally. I was never, like, not to say that my mum's love or dad's love or whatever wasn't, you know, wasn't lovely. It was, like, part of it was tainted. And I'd never internalized love in, like, this way for myself and attached properly to people because... Yeah. I had never felt unconditional love. And at that point, yeah, I was just like this broken small creature on this mattress crying and laughing and rolling around in happiness, like this feeling that I've never felt before. And it just felt like my heart was like completely open. And there was this like laser beam of universal interconnecting cosmos love, like pouring in, cosmic love pouring into my heart. And just the epiphanies it was, it was like someone split a happy atom in my brain. And you've got to remember this is ten hours into a trip, like the peak experience had gone, yeah yeah so so it's i I you know when they talk about the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, I'm not religious for the listeners, but I like the symbology behind any religion because I think there's great power in the stories they tell um when they talk about the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, when you talk about Father, God, you are you know everyone has the power of God within them, you have this power to love yourself unconditionally in other people. Jesus, mm. he is the other, the other loves you and then love like the Holy Spirit. If you align these things up, three things up, like during a trip, you have this transcendent, amazing experience where you, you know, like, like John O'Donohue says, like it's a breaking dawn within your heart that like allows you to see the good in everyone and just understand that people have had fucking hard traumatic upbringings. And that's where yeah, this yeah. hate comes from. And that's what fuels wars and that's what allows kids to put cadet uniforms on and want to join the army and live in the reflection of their father's eyes and Mm. go back out to war and then the father who was in the army then produces a son who's in the army who gets killed in the army more hate like more trauma and it's just you just see it all unfold in front of you and you're like oh man i've got to do something about this now yeah but you're never free of that thought from then on. You're never too far away from the path. You know now that the joy, the love, everything is it's yours. It's divinely yours. Like no one can touch it. Like, like people can certainly try and inflict their pain on you. But this this is hard. And this, You know, the Dalai Lama says it like pain is inevitable, but suffering was choice. And I hmm. realized that was my choice. The way I was seeing the world through this damaged victim lens. And in that moment, I was there, like, "There's no point living like that anymore." And I, I went outside and I just threw up black bile, and like the tears were like dripping into this black sick. And I was just said, "Like, there goes my trauma. There goes my big trauma. Like, wow. the, death, the death of Martin has just come out of me, and it's on the floor. And I'm going to have to kick this dog away because it's coming to lick it up. That dog doesn't want to be possessed anyway." Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, and. Yeah, I came, I came back. For, I, left my, I left that trauma, that sick in Barcelona, got on a plane. And my life hasn't been the same since. My self-esteem started raising. I can talk to you like this on a podcast. I could do this on the news if I wanted to. I have done it on the news. Like it's just pure truth and acceptance and vulnerability and forgiveness all wrapped and up how, in How one. long ago was that that you came back? January, January last year.
0: January last year. So it's a little over a year. Yeah. You've been in this, this new state of mind.
1: Yeah. And, and I've tripped since and I've, you know, like I'm, a, I'm an advocate for the rescheduling of drugs to schedule yeah. two so that we can research them efficiently. I I can't sit here and not tell anyone to do what I did because like moral like moral development like people's like where you've got a moral obligation to like warn people of of like the the things that can go wrong which i think is true i mean but hundreds of thousands of people do take psychedelics every weekend with you know without guidance but i'm not saying that's right or wrong i'm saying that i didn't have a choice because the uk government can't put their stupid egos to rest right (laughs) and like research this and make it a thing so i don't have to go crawling my hands and knees through a forest to find some mushroom to overcome yeah. to overcome my past traumas and and have that post-traumatic growth from it as well to to help now tell my story and educate other people and be like yo man like maybe you just want to like love yourself a little bit with this drug and see how you feel after <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah maybe
0: <laughs> yeah it's hard it's hard not to if if you were, you know, somebody came to you and said, you know, Hey guy, what, you know, what should I do? Should I go forage for mushrooms in Scotland or or buy a coffee shop? Um, you know, what what's some advice you would, you would give them in terms of making sure they do do this in a safe, harm-free way and, and get the benefits from it?
1: Yeah. So first of all, I'd say that, remember I was studying psychology at the time, mm-hmm. um, which was hard, but so i I had a lot of support around me i had an, I had institutional support, not that they condone me going off to find mushrooms and take it, but you know the people who were teaching me were counselors and therapists and trauma therapists, so I felt very safe that anything that would come up I could discuss and I also had like yeah. I had beautiful friends around me this one part of growing up is being able to step into circles and groups of people who were just lovely nice people and right because I never had ties to one spot, I never made, I never had a home in one area. I was always moving around. I find it quite easy to step into into places which are nourishing and good for me now. Whereas mm. before I, I wasn't making those decisions. So I would say social support is so key. Like having like lovely people around you. Um, I would, you know, go on the website there's a lot of harm reduction websites now like make sure you're not you know if, you, if you're if you of a neurodiverse mind like does that come with like voices and stuff like that i don't know like it's just it's hard like i don't want to ever exclude anyone from it it's so hard for me not to
0: but yeah but there's some things that people should just like you said look at the harm reduction websites yeah you know from everything from zendo to dance safe yeah to, to see you know make sure if they're if they're taking any kind of a medicine talk to their doctor you know so yeah. there, there are contraindications and some of them can be deadly some of them can just you know reduce the trip
1: yeah exactly um so you know you it would be stupid fairly stupid not to do your due diligence um And go and research them um and then yeah don't do them alone like yeah like just just there's like like i said you need the alignment of you yourself and other like we if you study interpersonal neurobiology there's something that happens when you enter the embrace of another human being we have these skin receptors which then release oxytocin oxytocin is a molecule we should really be looking at like yeah serotonin great but for me that just allows you to transcend your attachment style it means that you instead of like if you used to be avoidant and you didn't want to be hugged or touched in these windows of opportunity you can put yourself hopefully in a they're a trained person or they're your friend or they're a family member you can put yourself in their embrace and then Feel those neurochemicals come down through your body and that's the healing property of them like we're social primates that's what we need and we just live in this hyper autonomous world where we've got walls between all our neighbors we don't even know our neighbors anymore because the house in market is so stupid you have to move like hundreds of miles away from your friends just to find a house that you can afford right loss loss of community it's like that's what you're trying to get back to yet you never know it and it usually and in COVID, you can probably feel it more than ever. That's why I moved house. I moved into a big shared warehouse with four people who can probably hear every word that I'm saying right now. Who I trip, <laughs> with, who I trip with as well. You know, like they. Right. Um, and they're beautiful, wonder, wonderful souls, and like everyone's just really coming together, and it's like we've right. really found ourselves a nice little nest. And what it's doing for me is just, you know, it's, it's I'm allowing myself to just sit comfortable and, and make good rational purposeful decisions and yeah like when you haven't had a place that you felt that you could call home before it's it's everything it's nice
0: yeah that's beautiful um i want to i want to give you a chance to tell us about the documentary but before that mm-hmm. you're, you're here on the podcast you've done interviews you do this documentary is going to be coming out um as a result of, of being open about this, have you had to deal with any stigma? You know, like <laughs> you mentioned how your family came at you about your ADD. Have they come at you about the stigma? Have other people in, in university friends, anybody come at you and, and have you experienced any of that stigma from being open about psychedelics?
1: Yes. Oh, <laughs> tell um, yeah. So I just, I'll just quickly say, because in my family listen to this, I, d- I don't feel like they've come at me. It's just, and the same with when talking about psychedelics, it's all a place of not knowing and not taking the time to go and find out. And like, you know, we feel yeah. this in family systems when when a parent might invalidate the work that you do because I'm against drugs. Like my, like my family comes, my, my dad's a policeman, but he's actually, he's really come on board. Uh he well he's a retired policeman now. Worked in like okay. you know proper high up and stuff. My right. mom's my mum was a teacher, retired now. So you got these two very archetypal positions which are very anti-drugs. So of course the whole life has been about keeping drugs out of schools. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah and like let's hear me like preaching a completely different message and you know, drugs drugs to people are just a like like a whole brand in itself. It's like people are just anti-drugs without unpacking what that actually means. And it's because a lot of people get stuck in the develop, uh, the moral development phase of, of legality. And they, you know, but there comes a point where you realize that we can respect laws, Mm -hmm. but we can, we can view them from a place above them. So we can stick to them, but we can challenge them because otherwise, you know, you'd never escape draconian laws, which are Yeah, you know, not good for the community. So yeah, I had a lot of backlash. When I came back from the Barcelona trip, I told my mum what had happened and she looked at me nervously and she was like, LSD is in what the hippies used to take in the seventies. Right, right. I was like, Yeah, those ones, I like, I don't want to hear about it.
0: <laughs> she didn't want to like, I don't even want to hear about it. Don't tell nah,
1: me. Nah. Nah It's oh, too painful. Funny. It's too is like, like everything I'm talking about now is just too painful for, for some yeah. some family members. They they want you to be that kid that you were because you're a right. stable
0: yeah. thing
1: for them. Like, my middle name is Alan. My uncle was killed the year before I was born. Alan, like I am the reflection of. Yeah. You know, like it's so hard for anyone. Like, no one wants you to change out of the, the image that they've created of their child. Yeah. Like, people say, like, they want them to, like, reflect them. But no, like, we should, like, spiritual uh, maturity is about allowing that kid to fully, to validate every feeling, allow them to be who they want to become and empowering them. Like, the moment you start saying, oh, well, that doesn't fit my lens, that child has to then repress and internalize parts of your damage, of your trauma, and it's (laughs) hard. Um, that's,
0: a, that's an excellent point.
1: Yeah. And, um, oh, yeah, my university. I've now emailed them five times about starting a psychedelic society. Um, I've emailed them about um, this documentary, Breaking Through, which is coming out, and the mm-hmm. event that's being hosted by Psychedelic Society. Big up Psychedelic Society, by the way. Um, and,. No one will listen. And every lecture that we talk about any mental disorder, if I bring up psychedelics because they shut down the conversation so far, like I've had a I've had a mentor say a tutor say, Oh, what is in shamans? (laughs) Really? In front of people. And you're like, you're like, man, like you're meant this is meant to be a university. Like Yeah. Come on. Like, oh, well, there's not much research to suggest there's not much have you Tell, tell me the research that you've looked at. Oh, well, I haven't actually looked at any research. And you just said like, wow. Like, <laughs> like, wow. Like when does the student outgrow the maturity of the tutor? Like, right it's shameful it's shameful and like this is such a pivotal moment in history where we need to make sure that the voices come from a younger generation the diversity like we need to know where the pain and the suffering is coming from we need to make sure that the businesses are started with this in mind and they're not just millionaire tycoons who just want to come and commercialize it and take it away from its indigenous roots like but I can't yeah. even have that discussion. I don't even have a platform. So when I start mentioning it in the chat on the side of our Zoom talk, which, you know, gets overlooked right. by a lot of people, people are like, oh, well, guy, it's not, you know, it's not a treatment for everything. I'm like, I know it's not a treatment for everything, but it is a treatment for emotional trauma that can go back to the neuroplasticity of when you were a child and therefore you can get the unconditional love of fathers and the healing that you need, which will you know show you the light a little bit right but i'm not saying it's for everyone it's painful and it's hard and it's a drug and if you know like neo in the matrix when trinity stops him from getting out the car and is like neo aren't you bored of going down that same road every time this is when people come to psychedelics like they know there's like there's a way like you just got to see through the system and like that's why it's daunting for people they don't want to give up the system because. I'm not yeah. saying like I'm not saying give up on the the, the society system. I I love our society. I, I, there's bits that I really don't like. I'm not anti society. I'm saying there's a, there's a way to be part of this society, but actually redirect your attention to what really matters and counts. And ultimately, that's our environment and social quality. Like that's yeah. just raising the standards of living so people don't come into this this world with conditional love.
0: Yeah. I sure I sure hope they start listening to you <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I, I, I think that shit has sailed I've annoyed enough people in the lectures yeah. and but it's it's hard because I I get the backlash of all the students who know nothing about it who just said like oh well just just shut up about it or blah 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 and it, it disempowers my voice it's so frustrating it's it's yeah. horrible and then because now by the uni not giving me a platform, can you see how it then turns the people I'm talking to about it? I turn them against psychedelics. Yeah, because they have because I'm just the annoying kid talking about psychedelics.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's it's amazing that the backlash in the the settings. I, I was so I do I do some stand up comedy. Yeah, I was in a uh,
1: brave man, brave brave man. I don't know about that,
0: <laughs> but. I attended a panel discussion about mental health among comedians, and I brought up the question. I was like, well, what, what do you guys think about you know psychedelics and working with mental health? The entire panel, much to my immense surprise, were like, oh, drugs are bad. And I was just like, what? Yeah. Of, of all the places in the world, I thought a group of comedians talking about drugs, they would go, oh, yeah, those have really helped me, or we like those, or we need to study those, but they just all shut it down. And it just blew me away.
1: Well, think think about it. Think about why they're, like, no offense to them, and I'm not saying this is true, but this might be true. Why, why is it for some people that they want to get up on a stage and make everyone laugh and feel happy? Like going back to Robin Williams, he killed himself. Right. But he looked like he was one of the happiest men on the stage. But maybe sometimes it's comedians who, who need that medicine the most, you know? Like they do. We are miserable people. <laughs> yeah. Well you don't know, you know I mean? sound like it. Yeah. yeah,
0: it's uh we are neurotic and miserable and angry. I mean it's but these were people who had supposedly dealt with their mental challenges and their mental health issues. And so I just was like, Okay, these guys will be way open to this because I know a lot of comedians are doing acid so they can write and they smoke marijuana so they can be creative yeah. i just was like it's just one of those things just like you're talking to people in the university and you are yeah. like you're supposed to be on the cutting edge you're supposed to be advancing knowledge and, and here you are pushing back on this idea
1: yeah well just that's just it's kind of triggered a thought in my mind there like in my family system because of just the way things were and there was a, you know those people unknowingly they were this this trauma was my, you know, my nan was depressed and that like, kind of like because of losing her son and stuff. Like I became the funny kid. Like I became the entertainer at times. Uh, like yeah. like in those like the moments of like downtime, like I did become the entertainer and like that was a big part of my personality for a while until I felt like I lost it in depression, but I'm getting it all back now. It's like, okay. it's slowly coming back. Yeah. yeah. Like the, it's just because now I can be present um, and, yeah. and like tune in on the moment so I can make those like, you know, quick snap quick fire jokes in the in the moment and i'm glad i've got that back because it's just fun isn't it
0: yeah yeah it is and i I can tell you you do have a good sense of humor in our funny that that has definitely come out
1: wow good
0: in this this conversation um so tell us whatever you want to share tell us a little bit about this documentary breaking through ptsd with psychedelics what what's the deal with that
1: okay um I was doing an interview I signed up to do some extra work just in uh January last year maybe February last no it was after the trip don't know very much it's probably like April last year and to get this job I had to do a 1 minute interview and send it off to my agency um mm-hmm. and they would you know see if I just had to talk about myself and I I talked about psychedelics classic um and nice one of the guys who was watching it, who was involved in like picking the actors or the people who come on to do this um, advert that they wanted doing, which was ironically for this uni lad thing over here and it's for the military. Um, so I, I was actually going to be part of the, an advertising campaign unknowingly. Anyway, he, I didn't get the role, but he listened to the story and he was like, wow, well, I'm an independent. Um, filmmaker, I do short films and people with inspiring stories. And I would love to just, you know, come and join you for some some interviews and listen to your story. Um and his name's Dan Lufton. Um and yeah, he came over and we chatted and I was like, yeah, there's it's good to get the story out there. Like um people who used to know me, I guess like there was always like a bit of a narcissistic wound where I wanted to kind of you know, like get my story out there, like be a center of attention. But now that I've done the work, it's like, wow, it's really not about that. It's just about helping other people find their way to it. Um And yeah, we just worked together and um over the space of, I guess, almost a year because lockdown and everything came in. Um We, he followed like my journey, a little like one-to-one sort of interviews on what had happened. And then he's also got, um Ben Sessa is speaking on there he's yeah you know he's a big name um yep. and also my mushroom dealer he he's on there um <laughs> what a legend um, Hello, right, right. Yeah, yeah um and and yeah we just we put it together and just tried to give really honest account of of um of like my experience and like none of it was re-recorded everything is just straight off the back and I like right I didn't stop anything or I didn't try and you know I was just honestly trying to answer questions that he'd have for me like from what felt yeah. true and I didn't have a lot of the language back then to even describe what had just happened but I wow. try my best and I think it comes across in just a in a bit of a different way than a lot of the documentaries have it's just it's small. It's like, it's a lot smaller than the big documentaries, but it's nice. It's, I, th- I think it's hum- like, it's, it's humble. If I may say so to myself.
0: Um, yeah. And I watched the trailer. There's was a short trailer out there and I'll put a link to it in yeah. the text, in the text here on the podcast. But um, yeah, I mean, you, in the, the short minute, you know, trailer in the, the short time you were talking, even when it first started off, I was like, Oh my gosh, is that guy? Cause you sounded so natural.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, and at, at the same time, the BBC News picked up my story as well. So I was on the BBC nice. Breakfast News channel, like one of the first sort of um, news reports where they actually allowed someone to kind of talk positively about using mushrooms for therapy. Nice. Um, and that's when I got picked up with drug science as well. So I became a veteran advocate for the Medical Psychedelics Working Group for Drug Science. And wow. I was also put in contact with a guy called Keith Abraham, who's now my CEO at um, <laughs> Heroic Hearts Project UK. He's like he's like the least CEO-y person, but he's he's great. Right. He's he's got his head screwed on so well. Um, and yeah, we're just we're just building this amazing team now. And it's nice. we've just and it so Heroic Hearts Project picks up veterans in the UK who need um, psychedelic therapy. And then because of our stupid drug laws, we have to go and journey to somewhere like Peru or Amsterdam. Right. Um, And then people get their healing out of the country. And then they also get like a lot of their integration and stuff at these centers abroad. But then a lot of that, we're creating a network of integration coaches in the UK with Sarah Tai, who's an amazing integration slash therapist in this space. She's trained a lot of people, um, already for a lot of these clinical trials and um, yeah, we're just growing and people are just, you know, the the stories from veterans are always so powerful, especially if you can completely, completely do the work and you, you can draw strength from, you know, everything. There's, there's a lot to be uncovered. Um, And then you've just got the network of, you know what it's like, the network of veterans is someone goes missing at the bottom of the country. Someone at the top of the other of the country will, they'll know that that person's missing because everyone's so interconnected. So there's, there's a lot of, I guess, power in the community, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's yet to be sort of recognized and worked with in a, in a nice, correct way. In my eyes, I think it just, it's already amazing the charities and stuff that we already have, but I think heroic hearts is really going to go places. Our research is going to be open. We're not hiding, like, you know, anyone be able to use it. Um, heroic hearts, it all started from heroic hearts USA. Um, Jesse Gold over there, and now Canada, are, um also starting heroic hearts. So, we're now beginning to you know, um, create studies which um, are across continents, which is just as crazy good. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and just and just other stuff, we've got, um, we're, we're really trying to put some pressure on the government and and appeal for compassionate access like Uh um so you know people who are on the verge of you know taking their lives like can we have a compassionate access for 10 veterans to have this like treatment here in the uk instead of you know it's covid times like they can barely travel as it is right um isn't there like a moral justification to give to give people this, this healing medicine, um, yeah, and then maybe that will be our foot in the door. Um, who knows? But a lot of exciting things happening. Um, yeah, a
0: lot of lot of great things you're doing there. That's really, you know, I'm I'm grateful to you for all the effort you're putting into this and and all the work, not just from getting the word out there, but integration, coaching, and working with heroic hearts. It's it's really fantastic.
1: It's a big, like, it's a such a team effort. It, it always sounds like I'm listing off a lot of things that I'm doing, but you know, if we it's as and when we can. You know, for me like come away from my studies and and just give an hour here or give an hour there and yeah um it's just yeah it's finding that mental space and then when you have it just working as fast as you can for for the organization
0: excellent excellent well uh what else do you want is there anything i didn't ask anything else still on your mind that you want to get out there
1: (sighs) oh no not yet i don't think so i I think that's we've we've covered everything. Okay. Um, but yeah, just like like we said earlier, if anyone's thinking about this route, like spend time with yourself before, like ask yourself all the question, like all you know, read spiritual teachings, everything like this. Surround yourself by nice people, even though it is on the internet. Start putting yourself in the position that you can see yourself on the other side of something like this happening. Yeah. And then you then you're doing like, you're doing the homework before you have the big journey, and then you're in just you're in so much better hands. Um, and yeah, just the people who are working in this space, like I admire you and well done for for going against the grain with this. I know it's it's hard. Um, it's sometimes can be a lonely journey, um, but god is it an amazing one and i can't wait for so many other people to start having their their breakthroughs and if they do come but don't you know
0: yes yes exactly yeah yeah beautiful beautiful thank you thank you so much guy that was uh just really raw and good information and i really appreciate it so thank you so much for coming here on the
1: podcast thank you for having me man yeah absolutely
0: That concludes this edition of the Stoned Ape Reports. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at Stoned Ape Comedy and subscribe to our newsletter at www.stonedapecomedy.com. Again, thanks for listening and catch you next time, Stoned Apes.